Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Jonathan Derbyshire. It's been a tumultuous week in the world of Brexit. Yesterday saw the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, angrily denouncing what she claimed was EU meddling in the British election, designed to damage her government ahead of the Brexit negotiations. That followed an acrimonious dinner in Downing Street between Mrs May and some of her colleagues and a delegation led by Jean-Claude Juncker, head of the European Commission. The details of the dinner discussions had promptly been leaked to the German press. So how bad are things? Joining me in the studio are Chief Foreign Affairs columnist Gideon Rachman and our Brexit editor Dan Dombey. So Gideon, how bad is it? Pretty bad. I mean, I think that people who've been following this closely could sort of see this coming for some months because it was clear that the EU was going to adopt a position that would be very hard line, at least as viewed from London. They're going to ask for a lot of money up front as a sort of settlement of what they regard as Britain's outstanding debts. Uh, And indeed, the FT reported this week that the number seems to have miraculously gone up by rather a large amount from 60 billion to 100 billion euros. They're also going to make other politically difficult demands, a very complex uh, deal guaranteeing EU migrants not just the right to stay in Britain, but all sorts of rights that would then be justiciable before the European Court of Justice. All of this very hard for the British to swallow. I think the British have been in a sort of, I don't know whether privately they're in denial, but at least in public they've been in denial. They've been saying, oh, it'll all be fine. You know, this is just the kind of jockeying you'll get ahead of negotiations, but it's in everybody's interests to do a deal. It'll be okay. And then the EU formally adopted their negotiating position. Then they show up in dinner at Downing Street, reiterate, apparently, these demands. And when May says, well, actually, we don't think we're going to pay you anything, and uh, says a couple of other things, the EU is either genuinely aghast or thinks it politic to let the European public and the German public know that the Brits are being very, very uh, obdurate. And so this all comes out in the press. And so the significance of it is twofold, I think. The first is that it's now open that the two sides are have apparently irreconcilable positions. But secondly, the very publicising of these rifts has led to a row, which culminated in Theresa May actually angrily denouncing the Commission and suggesting that they were trying to interfere in British politics. Now, that in, in turn is probably British politics at play because there's an election on. It's probably quite helpful to her to rally voters against Brussels interference, but it creates an incredibly unpromising backdrop to try to get a deal in what is a very short period of time. Dan Dombey, do you agree that these leaks have simply confirmed what we already knew about the um, respective negotiating positions of the two sides? I'm not sure whether I think it confirms whether we what we already knew. I think it's something that you can look at in two ways. You can either say this is a terribly unpromising start for what was already going to be a Herculean effort. You know, the full Brexit, the full Brexit Monty's, after all, supposed to be a divorce deal, an agreement of where you're headed in terms of your future relationship, and a transitional deal to cover that. And to do all of that by October 2018, which is what you'd need for it to be ratified and implemented by our exit in March 2019, is a hell of a task. And if you start off by 
cursing at each other and leaking against each other, that's not necessarily great. That's one point of view. There's another point of view that says, well, actually, let's be careful. You know, after June the 9th, when the election is over, people may be calmer. Formally speaking, Britain started off in fairly emollient vein with what really matters, which was Article 50 notification. And that's what really counts. What really matters, however, I think, is whether this rhetoric, this distrusting, this counter-briefing crosses over into that area of policy. And there'll be interesting issues to look at. One possible area will be what it says in the Conservative Party manifesto, a political document that will be, if not legally binding, politically binding. Mrs May is constrained by certain things she said in the past, in October about the ECJ and free movement. What she says in that manifesto, which is coming out soon, and which will provide her majority, is tremendously important. But another thing to bear in mind is we are very much in the realm of opening bids. You know, there's absolutely no doubt that the 100 billion is an opening bid by the Europeans. It's ask making requests for us to make payments for 2019 and 2020 when we'll already be out for things that won't be benefiting us in any way. It's asking us for making upfront payments for a rainy day fund. Both sides are setting out maximalist positions. That's not disastrous. That's not unprecedented. And that in itself, I don't think, portends the failure of these talks. Gideon, who benefits from the from the leaks? It certainly enabled Mrs May to talk tough for domestic consumption, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite interesting. Why would the Commission have done this? Now, it's possible that they, they did it because they're leaky, you know, and that people around the Commission have a habit of talking, you know, as the FT knows, we've got many stories that way, talking to journalists. But I suspect that if there was an underlying rationale, it could ha- could be to do with preparing European opinion for the idea that there could be a breakdown and blame shifting. That's what leaking is often about, is to, to say, look, guys, uh, something's going to go wrong. And, you know, getting getting the, your narrative out there before the other side does. Or it could be about putting pressure on the British government. But if that's the case, it probably backfired. There's one school of thought that says this is about puncturing and ending British denialism, that the British public discourse is a fantasy neverland, and that by actually reminding Britain of just how difficult many of these things are, for example, agreeing a citizens' rights deal by June, as Mrs. Mason is alleged to have aimed at, you're bringing back British discourse to reality. Now, if that's the argument, I'm not sure it worked, because in fact, Mrs. May got some headlines that helped her very much indeed in the wake of a leak and her subsequent response. It's also worth bearing in mind that, you know, denialism and fantasy politics works both ways. I think, as I said, the European opening 100 billion demand is pretty unrealistic. But one of the reasons why they're doing that is that's something that all 27 can agree on. As long as the 27 can agree on the British Brexit, agree about talking about the British exit bill, they can be unified because then you don't have to get into difficult conversations about how much more the Germans have to pay or how much less the Poles will receive. They know that once you start talking about that more substantive relationship that Britain wants with the EU, then getting that easy unanimity that had the Europeans all clapping each other at the recent EU summit will be harder. And I think, therefore, yes, there's very much a demand to try and drag the British debate towards what the Europeans see as reality, but that shouldn't make us think that everything that the Europeans say is realistic. It's not just the Europeans, though, who've been uh, talking about British realism, is it? I mean, this is something that UK senior civil servants have been saying in private for some time. One thinks, for example, of Sir Ivan Rogers, the former UK ambassador to Brussels. Look, no, it's, it, it, there's certainly statements that the Brits have said that seem very hard to reconcile with 
how the system is works, how, how Article 50 works. Mrs May has said that she wants a comprehensive, ambitious, comprehensive trade deal within two years. You can't have that finalised within the EU treaty. You can't. There is within Article 50, there's a there's a provision for taking account of the, the, the framework of a future relationship between the EU and UK. But to have a final deal, you have to be outside the EU to have a final comprehensive trade deal with, with the UK. So there is clearly a level of ambition that people say across the spectrum is unrealistic from a Brit's point of view. Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, I mean, the kind of uh, lack of realism that worries me on the British side, though, is less to do with the timetable and more to do with the imbalance of power. Mm. So that it's possible that the EU's demands, say, on the 100 billion are both, you know, wildly overambitious in the way they interpret what Britain actually owes, unrealistic about British politics, and yet that they won't shift because it is 27 to 1. The clock is ticking and... The unfortunate, it's not just that it's 27 to 1, it's also that there's an asymmetry in what happens to the two sides if there's no deal. It's it's kind of inconvenient for the EU, but it's potentially disastrous for Britain. And, as Dan points out, the one thing that they can unify on, and the EU's gone through a period of, of massive division, is, well, if there's a lot of money to pay, why don't we get it from the Brits, who, after all, are no longer at the table? And so... My worry is that as the Greeks keep warning us, you know, Cassandra-like, is that actually this isn't really even going to be a negotiation because the EU, having formed their their demands, are just going to sit there and say, well, you know, agree or it's no deal. Well, I think that what's important here is that, you know, the Europeans have a negotiation among the 27. They, They actually set the rules for this process. And behind it... Germany has toughened its position. In terms of what really matters, the German position immediately after Brexit was much softer from what we've seen from Germany more recently. And if one's talking about impossibilism or denialism, there was a line in the past that the German motor manufacturers won't wear it, that, you know, the big German auto manufacturers and other big German industries simply wouldn't put up with any deal that disadvantaged them. But in that hardening German position, we've seen that that's not how the politics is working right now. In fact, Germany feels that it can do deal with the additional pain and that keeping the European project or indeed the Western project on the road for them is more important than a few knocks that their industry is likely to receive. And I think that's actually one of the fundamental problems here in terms of what Gideon says in terms of the power dynamic going on here. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's the, the issue. And that I think that a lot of the anger you saw in Britain is partly because they feel that Juncker was uh, unfair, rude in leaking all this. But I think behind it, there is an anger that thinking, oh, my God, you know, we're actually facing a much more difficult situation than we realise. And it's not just about the substance of the deal. As Gideon Dan mentioned earlier, the, the timetable, it's becoming clear that one of, one of the... Um, biggest obstacles to uh, smooth negotiations is the question of their sequencing. And Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator, had some bad news for Mrs May on that score yesterday, didn't he? Yeah, well, Barnier is being clear. And in fact, he's been ordered to be clear. He can't be anything other than this. He has no leeway because it's clear in, in, in his instructions. He says... We have a very strict timetable. First of all, we have to agree in principle the bill. So even if not the sum, the kind of sum. Citizens' rights 
and Northern Ireland, which is not so politically charged, but technically very hard to manage. And only then can we talk about what kind of future relationship we're going, uh, we're going to have. And other issues follow from that, like transitional arrangements, once you know where your final destination is. And basically, we need to sort out this first bunch of issues, including the Bill and Citizens' Rights, by October, November, the autumn, which leaves very little time for those subsequent talks, because which will have to be wound up a year later. So you can see given this sequencing, first of all, it makes it harder for the Brits because we have to pony up in some sense before getting the negotiation we want. It also makes the negotiation very, very much a race against time, which is why one thing that you're hearing from all parts of the spectrum, Eurosceptics along with Ramonas or Remainers, is the possibility of a no deal, the possibility of a complete breakthrough, break breakdown, I'm sorry, not a breakthrough, breakdown is very much on the horizon. One can be less than fatalistic. One can take these about these most recent exchanges. One can say it's all knockabout politics and the rough and tumble of politics, as David Davies has said. But clearly, there is a non-trivial risk that we don't get a deal, that certainly we don't get the full Brexit deal that I referred to earlier on. And uh, then the question is, at what point does the British preparations switch from preparations for a deal to preparations for a no deal? Because no deal with no preparations really would be a recipe for for chaos. And also whether the British can keep the kind of emotional backlash against Europe within bounds, because I think you saw this week may resort having spent the last couple of months saying it's all going to be sweetness and light with Europe they're going to, we're going to have a special relationship with them similar to our relationship with the United States essentially casting them this week in the role of the enemies of British democracy which is quite a switch and I had written a column this week about a sort of nationalist speech that I envisaged May giving in 2019 uh, you know about Britain standing alone against Europe as it has done in, over the centuries and uh, she gave parts of it a day after I'd written it, right? didn't have to wait two years. And Mrs May has been trotting out this week the old saw that no deal is better than a bad deal. I mean where is, where is British thinking on this at the moment Dan, do you think? It's an election she has to say this but one of the most telling things that occurred when David Davis appeared in front of the uh, House of Commons Brexit Select Committee is that we haven't costed we haven't done work on a no deal. And I think this is a fundamental issue in British politics. Just picking up from what Gideon said, there's very much a school of thought out there that says, given the sequencing that Barnier has come up with, and given that his deadline of October, November for doing agreeing the bill, citizens' rights, and so on, and the precious little time afterwards, that crunch point, that point at which we decide to really go out and prepare for no deal and everything that means in terms of WTO trading, assuming tariff barriers and non-tariff barriers to the rest of continental Europe and so on, that may well be the end of this year. The writing way on the wall may be as soon as that. And I I think that, you know, this is really thinking far ahead, but there, there is a school of thought, both in Brussels and among people in the UK, among those who want Britain eventually to rejoin the EU, that you've got to let this whole thing play out right to the disaster. That as as one uh, Tory who will definitely want to remain nameless because it's not a fashionable viewpoint in his party said to me, you know, we're heading towards a disaster, but my colleagues won't accept this until every last assumption that they've made is proven wrong and they've had their noses rubbed in it. And then maybe. And I think that there are people in Brussels who think that there are some who out of 
perhaps a degree of malice would quite like to see Britain crash into the wall because we've been such a pain over the years. But there are others who think, well, you know, the only way the Brits will and, and the rest of Europe will actually see the value of being in the EU and the danger of not being in the EU is by letting this thing play out. And uh, then eventually maybe you'll put it all back together again. I'd just like to add one point, which is we have a small matter of an election. And what that election means is that unless all the opinion polls are more wrong than the opinion polls that we've ever seen before, Mrs May will be re-elected with a very clearly pro-Brexit mandate. So there was perhaps a vanishingly small chance that Britain wouldn't go ahead with Brexit before she called this election. We weren't, it was, there was a perilous terrain for her, given what might happen in the negotiations, what might happen in the economy, what might happen with the many parliamentary fights she has to fight over the great repeal bill. That vanishingly small chance, I think, has now vanished. The, the referendum itself had no clear constitutional status. Winning an election on a clear mandate of Brexit does. So we are headed out of the EU. I think there's no doubt about that now. But what that means, of course, is still open for debate. Yeah, so we're clearly headed out of the EU. I don't think anyone denies that. Martin Wolfe has written a column today in which he argues that a large majority at the election will give Mrs May some room for manoeuvre to argue for a a softer Brexit than might otherwise have been the case. Well, there's clearly, you clearly have more argument, more room for manoeuvre if you have a majority rather bigger than 16 or 17. On the other hand, whoever new MP is going to be, part of this assumption is based on the idea that at least two thirds of those MPs are going to be more or less lobby fodder who, despite what they think privately, are willing to go ahead with what you say. Clearly, any deal that Brussels is likely to agree is going to be seen as betrayal by certain prominent Brexiteers. Until this, ref- until this election was called, they could pose themselves as the only people who were in touch with the willed people, the people with the mandate that the referendum delivered, the people with the tablets that were come down from Mount Brexit. After she wins this election, if indeed she wins this election, she'll have her own democratic legitimacy. And there is an argument that she will, therefore, be able to betray them on things like quite how justiciable ECJ rules are, quite how long a transition period is, whether we stay in the customs union for a while and so on. The question is, will she want to? Yeah, and I don't think we know that because, I mean, oddly enough, Mrs May remains very sphinx-like on this question of Brexit. She says kind of meaningless things like Brexit means Brexit or it's going to be a red, white and blue Brexit. And but, she was, of course, a reluctant Remainer. Before yeah, and who knows whether she even meant that or whether that was just a piece of political positioning. So we'll see. And also, I mean, she is, despite all that, a human being and she will respond to the pressures that she's put under. And I, one of the, my worries is that... She's going to be in an incredibly uncomfortable position with the EU holding all the cards, 27 to 1, leaking against her. She's going to end up hating these people. And I wonder whether she's going to end up making a kind of emotional decision. Fortunately, she doesn't strike me as a highly emotional person. But, you know, you could see how you might end up just saying, well, screw this. I'm going to walk away. We should return before we finish to the question of the so-called Brexit bill, since this was the subject of an FT scoop this week, Dan. And the FT calculated that the EU could demand an upfront gross payment from the UK of up to 100 billion euros, rather than the 60 billion figure which has been circulating for a while. So why the hike? Well, first of all, you have to remember that 100 billion is a gross figure, so it would probably come down. It definitely would come down. And quite the manner of payment, I think, would, whether it was instalment and how those instalments st- structured, the EU liberally says, you know, it would be open for discussion. The main differences are, to be absolutely honest, 
we're seeing member states take a harder line. And that, I guess, is bad news for Britain. I do think it's an opening bid. I do think one needs to be careful. But this is not the European Commission going way beyond its brief. It's Germany and Poland and others wanting to make sure that, you know, they make this quite daunting. And, you know, it's a kind of shock and awe opening bid, isn't it? It brings in, as I said, you know, things like 2019 and 2020 payments, this rainy day fund. The details don't really matter. What matters is it's a hard opening line. Some of us thought 60 billion sounded quite a lot. You know, 100 billion is extraordinary. It's also a slightly suspiciously round figure. Um, so it reminds me, people were making the comparison, was it the Austin Powers films with Dr. Evil trying to find a sort of really excruciating ransom figure and eventually saying 100 billion trillion dollars. It's a bit like that. You know, it's just a huge sum of money, which almost seems designed to provoke fury in Britain. Gideon Ruckman, Daniel Dombey, thank you. Please join us again next week for another episode of World Weekly. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.